Today, 152 million children around the world are not today worrying about finishing homework or about their acne or about dating. Those kids from age 5 to 17 are all child laborers. And on top of those labors, those child labors around the world, there are 40 million people who are actually slaves. Slaves. And 71% of those 40 million are women. One out of four of the 40 million slaves are children, which is probably not surprising since children and women together are more vulnerable. And they are a sizable chunk of the women and children in general who are forced into sexual exploitation. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for September 27th, 2017. Now, I've been thinking a lot about this topic since taking part in a meeting at the United Nations last week as part of something called Alliance 8. which is a global alliance to end forced labor and child labor. And I thought of this. Basically every day on my social media feed, and perhaps this says something about who I know or who chooses to know me, there is something about the mistreatment of animals. And sometimes there's a plea to be a vegetarian or a vegan. But there isn't a fraction of the same plea on that same social media stream about the workers who are in slavery and specifically the workers who put food on the table, including for vegetarians. Because millions of those people that I mentioned who are in slavery are in fact slaves in agriculture. Now let me add a few other stats to ponder, stats compiled in a joint effort by the International Labor Organization. I'm going to talk about the ILO in a couple of minutes, a little bit more. And the Walk Free Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to ending slavery and forced labor, which was actually started and underwritten by a billionaire, an Australian billionaire, a mining magnate named Andrew Forrest. 15.4 million people live in a forced marriage. And not surprisingly, 88% of those are women. Now, a third of those, meaning the 88% of the women, were under the age of 18. And of that third, I know this is complicated math, it is for me, 44% were forced to marry before the age of 15. Let me say that again. Millions of people predominantly women were forced to marry before the age of 15. And that is part of the face of modern slavery. The largest share of the forced laborers that I mentioned earlier and the slaves are domestic workers, those people who do, for example, housework. And 4 million people were forced laborers courtesy of the state. And that's primarily in the United States talking about prison labor. And as many of my listeners know, the prison industrial complex is growing by leaps and bounds because we imprison huge numbers of people. Now, it made me think, all those statistics and what we're going to be talking about today, of F. Scott Fitzgerald's quote. 
and this is the quote, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in the mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. Okay, so at least in my case, it's a second or third-rate intelligence, but here are the two opposing ideas that I grapple with, and I'm sure many of you have thought of this as I've talked about these statistics. The first is that this is just a huge scale of a moral outrage. 152 million children in forced labor. 40 million people who are slaves. And it's hard to wrap your brain around it and think then that it's actually solvable, short of entirely changing the entire global economic system. And it's even harder to think how the goal of eliminating all forms of child labor by 2025, which is a stated goal of the United Nations, how that's even possible. Because the reason there are millions of people living in slavery and forced labor is because someone is making a profit from their sweat and blood. This is about money. And in fact... The ILO has computed that it comes out to about $150 billion in illegal profits just from forced labor. But the second idea that I think we have to hold in our mind as we hold the first idea of the enormity of this outrage is that there is a movement to end this, a global movement. And one has to have that hope and that commitment to make sure that this moral stain, this global outrage, is known in every corner of the world. And that's what we'll talk about today with two very, very high-level leaders and global experts from the International Labor Organization. Now, and before I want to introduce them, a few words about the ILO. It has driven me batty, nuts, for a very long time that the ILO's work gets very little attention around the world and certainly in the dumbed-down traditional media in the U.S., or frankly, sometimes I have to say this about the alternative media. The ILO turns out the most amazing research and statistics about workers go through around the world. And it's true, sometimes it's an academic and dry read, but for fuck's sake, that's what journalists are supposed to do. They're supposed to read. They're supposed to figure out what a story is. They're supposed to humanize it and bring it to people. But media people are lazy. They want to deal mostly in gossip and anonymous sources and Russia, Russia, Russia 24-7. And so what's happening to actual workers around the world is not of interest. And the ILO, in addition to the research, is trying to do this incredible advocacy every day to protect workers' rights, to expand the right to collectively bargain all around the world in the face of this massive push from the free market system from global capitalism. So my rant is over, and now to my very, very special guests. The first guest, the first person I'm going to speak to is Guy Ryder. And Guy comes actually out of the international labor movement. He was elected as the first general secretary, and that's the top post in the global labor world, of the International Trade Union Confederation when it was created back in 2006 from the merger of two global labor federations. And then he was elected as ILO Director General by the ILO's governing body in May 2012. And then he took office a few months later, and he's been in that position since then. And I had a chance to sit down with Guy at the ILO New York offices just a couple of days before that meeting on child labor and slave labor. Listen to this. 
One of the things that strikes me always about this question about slave labor and child labor is the enormity of it. And I mean, you've been trying to address this for so long. And one of the things I noticed in reading um, a lot of the material was that there was some progress and then it slowed in 2012 through 2016. And why did that happen from your point of view? Okay, we've got to distinguish between, in terms of trends over time, between what's happening in respect of child labor and then what's happening in the question of modern slavery and forced labor. Okay. And I think what you've just referred to applies particularly to child labor. Now, the ILO first started counting the numbers on child labor in the year 2000. Uh, now we're at 2016 estimates. Look, the good news uh, is that we've made very significant progress. Uh, you know, um, we've reduced child labor by 91 million. Now there's still 152 million in oh. the world, which is a extremely big number, but 91 million, you know, ha has gone off. Now, what does that tell us? Uh, firstly, it tells us um, that, you know, this is not mission impossible, that with the right policies, and we've gained a great deal of experience on what the right approaches are, we can make a very, very, um, you know, um, we have already made a very big difference in respect of child labor. And the goal that the international community has set itself, which is the elimination of child labor by 2025, you know, it's not a utopia, it's not a dream, it's something which with the right application of political will and policies can be achieved. And that's, to that, I oh, will come to the, the slavery in a second, let's stick with the child labor. Yeah. Okay, so but that's still an enormous number of right. of yeah. human ch and and I and I do it does strike me that beyond the numbers I was thinking about this you know in a certain way the, the rich the meaning the richer part of the world developed world yeah. they don't see those actual children in child labor as much you know you don't see them out in the streets as yeah. it feels like a yeah. a, a, a a massive global problem. Yeah but that's not yeah. in people's consciousness every day. Well, you're right about that. Can, can I just say, yes, though, in terms please. of trends over time, yep. because you alluded to something which is very important. You know, we do these estimates every four years. Mm. So the latest figures coming out right now, 2012 to 2016, show that, again, a significant number uh, have been reduced. Uh, the numbers have come down by 16 million, but the rate of progress has slowed very significantly compared to the previous four-year period. And is there any connection to the financial crisis in your view? Well, you know, there, I mean, one has, it is slightly speculative about why, but by the way, since the year 2000, the line has gone up and down. It's not been a nice linear progression. There have been moments of, of, of very, you know, quick progress, and the period to 8 to 12 was one, strangely, just after the global crisis. And now it's slowing down. Now, uh, so speculate. Tell me what your gut well, feeling is. I, why? I think, why is that? Uh, well, there are two things. One is what conditions are like uh, in, in in the global economy, yeah. and perhaps counterintuitively, the impact of the crisis seems to have been to actually increase the rate at which child labour has been diminished. Maybe uh, in situations where labour markets are tight, where there's less work out there, well, children get less sucked in. Yeah, yeah. But I think the other thing, and I think this is the only one we can really operate upon, is you know, the ebbs and flows of political attention and political will, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think today the lesson we can draw is that with the, uh, the 2030 development agenda, with its target 8.7, which is to get rid of child labor, mm -hmm. now is the time to marshal the political will on all of these issues. Also, I think we need to break down um, these big figures, these big numbers, to say, well, what are the realities? What's going on? Because you make the point about visibility 
do we feel these issues? Bad news is Africa is going backwards and not forwards. Mm. Uh, you know, the greatest prevalence of child labor uh, is, uh, is in Africa. And I assume that's because it's some things are more desperate there in terms of there's uh, huge droughts, for example, in, yeah. in much of sub-Saharan Africa. And I think it's to do with overall economic conditions. Mm. I think it's to do with demography. Don't forget you've got burgeoning, mm. you know, younger populations there. Mm -hmm. uh, and also the fact of the matter is the resources and the political attention needs to be bolstered in Africa. So we're going back there. Uh, we're making less progress with girls and with boys, and we're making less progress with younger children than with older children. So we've got to look at all of these numbers and draw the lessons uh, from it. Um, but as I say, 2025 is the, is the date we've set ourselves to eliminate child labour. Now, if we carry on at the rate of progress uh, that we're at right now, by the time we get to 2025, there'll still be 121 million child <laughs> workers. So. You know, from 152 today, we'll have got to 121, but we're a long way from that zero figure that we want. So the answer is we have to put our foot on the accelerator. And so to, for my listeners to break down child labor, and part of that would be child labor would be parents who have no choice because they can't make enough money just to feed the family. They have to put their children out there versus... Um, I guess what I'm saying, the connection to slavery, where yeah. some children are, are essentially either seized, kidnapped, forced. Yeah. It, are those the two poles well, or the two aspects listen, of it? Listen, I mean, the, uh, the, the remarkable fact is uh, that most child laborers work in a family enterprise. They work yeah. with their parents, yeah. with their parents, you know, in, in, in as, as unpaid helpers, as, as in the agricultural sector in particular, no. where child labor is concentrated. So... The big numbers are in that agricultural family context. Mm -hmm. Maybe not what we think. Huh? There's not always a third party. Mm -hmm. There's not always a, you know, a, a, an employer who is separate from the family. And I think that that you know, adds substance to what you've said about the need to sort of get under the skin of these issues, address the developmental side of child labor. Uh, you're quite right. Uh, child labor correlates with low-income countries and yet a very high proportion of child laborers are in middle-income countries. So it's not exclusively a poverty, or at least a national poverty problem. It can be concentrations of poverty in certain family areas. And the other thing which I think we need to take into account is the extent to which child labor also correlates with situations of conflict and fragility, right? Uh, which economic it's uh, ever more prevalent in the world, as you know. And which points particularly to your point about Africa, because Africa, there's so much armed conflict Correct. in Africa, it's unstable um, compared to probably other continents right Correct. now. Right. Now, do you, from a, I was going to use the word moral, but mm -hmm. do, we, do we put a different um, spin, a, a different view about child labor where parents are kind of forced mm -hmm. to have their children work versus slavery? where there's somebody, uh, an entity, a company, or um, you know, merchants, or traders who yeah. force people into slavery. Do you, do you see the different ethical? Yeah, you know, we, make, uh, we, we do make a distinction uh, in, in our work on child labor uh, between child labor and then the worst forms of child labor, which includes uh, forced and slavery-like practices, any situation which endangers also the health or the moral development uh, uh, of a child. So it's difficult to talk about these things, but there are you know, gradations of gravity in all mm -hmm. of this. 
But perhaps I could say something about forced labour. Let's it move sort to of that, segues yes. segues into the forced labour story because we're putting out new figures on, on forced labour and slavery. And I just have to take a moment to explain our terminology. Um, modern slavery, um, by the way, that's the sort of the, the headline um, uh, phrase uh, for what's in the UN development agenda. That includes forced labour and forced marriage in particular. Mm. And our figures that we're releasing right now show that nearly 25 million are in forced labour and some 15 million just over uh, are in forced marriage. Now, the ILO's particular focus, as you'll understand, is on forced labour questions. Yes. So take those 25 million in forced labour, break that down. About 16 million um, are having forced labour extracted in the private sector by people extracting profit from uh, holding people in forced labour, 16. There's another nearly 5 million who are subject to sexual exploitation, we make that distinction. Mm -hmm. And then a figure around 4 million, which is where the state is responsible for extracting uh, forced labour. So those are three distinct categories, they add up to 25 million, which is, I think anybody would agree, a startling figure in this day and age. And the state forced labor, four million, what is that, what is that actually in real life? What does yeah, that mean? It's a, it's a difficult thing to imagine, isn't it? Um, it, it? It's a variety of situations. One is where the state requires people to join in work for economic development uh, programs. You know, they're supposed to be for the benefit of the country, but it's not voluntary. Uh, it also covers um, communal work, which goes beyond that sort of limited uh, types of activities which we regard as legitimate also uh, is about prison labour. Mm. Uh, there, there is a significant uh, situation where uh, prisoners are, are forced to work in circumstances which the ILO would regard as not permissible. There are some situations where it is permissible. And of course with the privatisation of, pr of prisons that it raises some particular uh, complex questions which the ILO and its supervisory system uh, is grappling with. Which is now a big issue in the United States. Sure is. Uh, we, as you probably know, this ha we have the biggest uh, prison population in the you developed do. world yeah. and increasingly they're privatizing it. Right. And with, so is that trend violating the ILO standards well, in this um, country? I have to say this is a very relatively new and a very active debate about mm. where you can draw the line because we do recognize that under some circumstances it is legitimate uh, that prisoners work. The question is uh, establishing the conditions which make it legitimate and what goes beyond those. And what's legitimate, what isn't legitimate? Well, well that's, that's, that's sort of the debate, I have to say. But obviously, if you have people working in a prison environment where they're not uh, able to have the protections or... They don't have a union, freedoms, for example. Well, uh, <laughs> it's simply no, no capacity to um, uh, sort of determine your own conditions of work. There is clearly a, a strong danger that not only uh, people are working in uh, conditions which uh, imply compulsion, mm -hmm. but also it represents unfair competition for, if, if the product is commercialized, it represents unfair competition to those operating in the normal economy. Right. Now, I, I, I just referenced something which I think is, um, particularly as a, as a organized labor person myself and something that I've focused on a lot, which is unions. Have you been able to correlate that question of the power of unions, the decline of unions around the world in a number of countries, or in some places where unions actually never had the rights to collectively bargain, 
to slavery and child labor? I mean, is there some sure. correlation to I, that? I think, look, I, I can't offer you precise figures, but I think it is generally accepted and certainly it is the view of the ILO uh, that, you know, particularly when it comes to fundamental rights at work, and by yeah. fundamental rights we talk about the right to organize and collective bargaining, protection against discrimination, protection against forced and against child labor. There's a clear correlation. You know, if, if you're in a situation where basic labor rights the rights to organize and bargain, where workers' organizations operate in, in, in relatively satisfactory conditions, then clearly that reduces the risks of, of child and forced labor. This, this is quite clearly the case. Now, it doesn't mean there's an absolute guarantee that it will deal with the problem, but it's certainly a way uh, uh, to reduce it. And I have to say, reverting to the numbers on forced labor, the fact that it is 16 million of the 25 uh, million subject to forced labor are in the private sector and being exploited by people for profit, engaging not only organized labor, but engaging the business community mm. is a very important lever. Now, I think, uh, you know, uh, most businesses, international businesses will not wish, and they're very conscious of the moral case and also the reputational damage, uh, of having their supply chains or their operations tainted in any way uh, by a connection with, with, with forced labor. Uh, we seek to work with the business community to, um, uh, to engage their responsibility and their possibilities to combat forced but labor. But some of that ends up being out of sight, out of mind. And I, I, you know, there's been plenty of examples of suppliers for Apple, for example, in China. A lot of the examples that I can think of have to do with China or Bangladesh, where you all and in, in the international community did a lot after the Rana Plaza fire. And you look at all that, it, it's like three or four times removed. They can say, well, hey, we had nothing to do with that. It was those contractors, that, you know, oh my God, how could we not, you know? So there's a little bit of a well, it's unbelievability a, factor well, you know, this from my been, point of view. This has been a, a really big debate and I, I, I understand where you're coming from. Uh, you know, Rana Plaza, I think, you know, that terrible tragedy in Bangladesh, which cost the life of 1,100 working people, Horrific. mostly young women. I think it focused uh, the international community's mind on responsibility in global supply chain management. Yep. It certainly provoked a debate in the ILO. Uh, and, you know, I, I think uh, it's fair to say that we now have um, a much better engagement from all sides of our constituencies on, you know, making global supply chains a vector for decent work and not of exploitation. Now, mm -hmm. you're right. Uh, debates are open. You know, uh, to what extent is it reasonable and indeed possible to expect uh, a, a commercial entity to control its supply chain to three, four suppliers down the line? Um, and, and you know, more and more, I think we're seeing that companies do recognise those responsibilities. The question is how we make that work. You know, and you've mentioned Bangladesh. Uh, we've worked hard internationally mm -hmm. with both sides, huh? with with buyers, suppliers and with organized labor to try and make, you know, a practical reality of the principles that you should be responsible uh, for the conditions in your supply chain. But for every disaster with Rana Plaza, there are probably hundreds if not thousands of situations, particularly with smaller contractors, where you, your hands can't reach. And mm. I, I wonder just how concerned you are, how much happens in the shadows, in the dark. You know, you guys are able, you have limited resources, let's be honest. Sure. And unless you really have, uh, uh, robust international sanctions where companies are taken to task, where 
actually executives go to jail for these things. Unfortunately, at least I, I use the U.S. example. Uh, when you look at misbehavior, certainly on Wall Street, or when it comes to people who die at work, executives don't pay for that. I mean, there's no, it's almost a cost of doing business. And so I understand the morality, ethical thing, but when they're sitting there in their executive suite, it, how do you force them yeah, to? Look, I think we've got a lot of levers. Uh, yeah. to, uh, I mean, I understand the, the frustration and the concern that people feel. I actually believe, you know, that the average person in the street, be it in New York or London or wherever else, they don't want the, the clothes they buy or the electronics they buy. Uh, to be the result of, uh, of of extreme labor abuse in terms of forced labor, whatever it is, child labor. They don't want that, but it's out of and sight, out of mind. So how do you make well, it? Well, we have to, that's mm. two things, I think. One is shining the light, yep. getting better information. This is, by the way, a little bit what the figures we're putting out right now is about. You've got to shine the light. You've got to, you know, uh, turn those stones over and see this is something nasty going on here. And then I think, you know, and, you know, I may not be quite as negative as you or quite so uh, world-weary as you. I think a lot of businesses want to do the right thing. I really do. As I said, when they're caught out, and you've mentioned, you know, the, the cases we all know about, the reputational damage, the market damage is enormous. So there is a combination, I think, and, you know, I don't want to discount it, of, of, of businesses wanting to do the right things to clean up their supply chains, better information, and then the instruments needed to make sure uh, that we are able uh, to, to clean up supply chains in the way that we all want to. Because there would be some would argue, if you look at the, the, big, the big picture, that this is inherent in the system, in a free market capitalist system, right? That would be some people would argue that you can't ever change that if the profit motive is so powerful and where the, wow. there are so many people seeking work and are so desperate to get work. I, what, you're, what you're doing, Nilo, is absolutely no. essential yeah, and yeah. important. I'm just saying the, mm. the, Listen, the I, hill I, to climb. Yeah, I mean, but you've some, seen this, you, you have perspective of a long uh, time at well, this. Well, I'm gonna speak for a longer perspective than I've seen. You know, if you look at the history of, uh, well, the is nearly 100 years old. Labor activism, trade unionism is older than that. You know, if you wanted really to put a sort of a, a you know, a one-line definition to what trade unions have tried to do over those century or more, it is to regulate the global marketplace, to regulate what happens in workplaces and economies around the world. Mm -hmm. Most of this under conditions of capitalism, which mm -hmm. have, you know, often been extremely harsh. And if you look at the beginnings of trade unionism, they were extremely harsh. Now. Yeah, there are always challenges to that, but have trade unions and governments made a difference? Has the ILO made a difference? Well, well yeah, yeah. As I said earlier on, there are 91 million fewer child laborers at work today than there were in the year 2000. If we'd been having this interview 16 years ago, uh, it would have been a much worse situation. So, you know, I always worry about the sort of mind frame which says, you know, you're never gonna solve this problem because I think it induces not to hide the difficulties or the extent of the problems we have in front of us, but I worry that that type of resigned attitude induces paralysis. You know, mm. we can't do anything about it. Right. Well, we can. We can. And I think your point is absolutely right about shining the light yeah. and making people aware. Because it struck me as I was walking to meet with you, I walked by a store that had a sign that said organic food and organic chickens. And I thought for a second as I was thinking about this, you know, people are so much more aware about the health and welfare of the chicken or the beef that they eat. And that's such a conversation compared to the workers who sure. 
create that food? Am I, does, do you ever, well, does, I, I, does that I know ever strike you? you? I, I know exactly what you mean. Uh, you know, I mean, our first duty of sort of care and responsibility should be to our fellow human beings, you would think, wouldn't you? Um, but it's interesting how public opinion, you know, pulls in different directions at certain times. But I repeat, I think people care about these issues. You know, if you put the facts to people and the realities to people, you know, the reality of a, a kid at work, yeah, I think the reality right. of forced labor, if you bring it home and say, and by the way, you know, what you just bought in that shop is linked to that, or yeah. how you behave and your behavior is linked to that situation. And, you know, shouldn't you be asking governments and asking enterprises to do better? People will react. So uh, I, I, I'm optimistic about human nature in these things, even if sometimes it's a struggle. So the last topic as we wrap up is uh, sort of maybe a, a difficult political question, which is so we're, you're about to convene and release this information and talk about the issue and raise it, and yet in the, U, the United States is clearly important in this issue. Yes. And you've got an administration that is not, can I say, um, disposed in, inherently to care about this. You have even the Secretary of State, although this doesn't fall, in the, it somewhat falls under the State Department mm. diplomacy, wants to cut the work of the State Department, cut these kinds of issues around human rights. Uh, it it seems like this could potentially be a setback for these efforts if the U.S. falls back and is not as committed to this. I think we need U.S. leadership on these issues. Yeah. We always have done and we need it today as much as we ever have done. Um, now, uh, as a general comment, let me say that, you know, we work with all administrations, all governments. We have 187 member states in the ILO. We try to engage constructively with all of them, and that's certainly the intention with respect to the current U.S. administration. Now, in the conversations I've already had, and I'll be having some more in New York with, with, with people from the Department of Labor in the U.S., mm -hmm. um, I mean, the signals I get is that on these specific questions of forced labor, of trafficking, of child labor, these are issues which uh, the department and the administration does care about. Uh, so I'm very... Um, eager and somewhat optimistic about engaging this administration around these issues. This is what I love about you, by the way, knowing you, know you're so the eternal optimist. Well, no <laughs> harm in being optimistic, but I don't think I'm being, I don't think I'm being unrealistically optimistic. Why? Because I think there is a genuine concern about these issues. And secondly, because, you know, if this is an administration, I've heard President Trump say this at the G20 very strongly, if this is an administration that wants to see a level playing field, fair practices in international commercial relationships, uh -huh. uh, this agenda links very much up with, with that one. Uh, the so there is a, there's a positive sort of logic to all of this. The argument being that if which there's... Which is not fanciful. Uh -huh. If you have low-cost labor, slave sure. labor sure. in other countries, that's not, uh, you Correct. can't compete against that. I mean, this is, this, you know, uh, I think, you know, if everybody observed fundamental labor rights around the world, we'd have the basics of a level playing field already in place. It's not the case right now. So I do see, you know, the force of logic around that uh, being one that can uh, mobilize and engage the interest and I hope the active support of the U.S. administration. By the way, I have to say that the figures we're putting out now have been put together with financial support from the United States, which we're very grateful.
And now from those amazing insights from Guy right on the front lines, I want to move to Bieta Andres. And Bieta is the chief, and this is going to be a long title, and you'll see, though, it has real importance behind it. She's the chief of the Fundamental Principles and Rights at Work Branch of the ILO Governance and Tripartism Department. I actually was able to say that without fumbling. And that department promotes policy development and carries out research and provides technical services on child labor, on forced labor, and also on non-discrimination and freedom of association and collective bargaining. But, you know, beyond that, this has been her passion, the question of child labor, forced labor, slavery. This has been her passion for a long time, and she has published widely on these issues about fundamental labor rights, about migration, and about human trafficking. And Bieta and I found a corner right after that meeting that I mentioned at the UN to chat after it wrapped up in a room next to a reception being held. So you will hear now and again some other voices in the background. And, you know, the first thing I want to ask you is, um, before we get into the stories and the numbers, is how did you get involved in this? What drew you to this work around forced labor and slavery? What, is it something that you just fell into, or did you have a passion for it? No, actually, there is a personal story about it. Oh. Um, I'm from the former communist part of the world, where forced labor was normal practice. Um, it was seen as a way of developing socialist countries. So school children would go to the fields and pick potatoes, for instance, uh, or cotton. Um, and which country were you from? From the former Eastern German. Oh, uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, prison labor, for instance, was very common. Um, I mean, forced prison labor. So I have always had um, the experience of, of injustice uh, on, on this particular issue. Later, were you actually part? Were you actually um, part of prison labor, or you saw no, it happen, or you had a family I member? Had a fr- yes, um, a friend of mine was imprisoned for his political opinions, mm. and he was forced to work in a, a factory that was producing chemicals, but with no social, with, with no safety gear at all. So th- these prisoners were exposed to extremely dangerous hazards and conditions, for instance, um, working long hours, physically very difficult, hard labor. Many of the prisoners at the time were intellectuals who were not used to this kind of work. Um, But in addition, uh, as school children, we were also sometimes going to work in factories um, or or on the fields. Later on, I um, experienced the Yugoslavian wars. you know, the Bosnia war in particular, Uh, worked for an NGO. In this capacity, I came across trafficking for sexual exploitation for the first Mm. time. You know, in the the aftermath, in particular in the aftermath of the Balkan Wars, but even during the war, you had um, a lot of demand for sexual services. And And how did you get involved in that? Well, that was because I worked for an NGO at the time. So I've seen forced labor, human trafficking um, from different facets uh, in in a a very early part of my life. And then uh, I started to get interested in this, did some research on it, and eventually got hired by the ILO. And ever since, it was a passion for me. Uh, It's not just a profession, it's a real passion. Yes, I can tell that, actually, from the way you talk about it and the way you're engaged in it and looking a little bit online at the material, material in your background, you really have a 
it's your commitment to it. It's not just a job. Absolutely, absolutely. So the, the thing that always strikes me, and I had this feeling when I talked to Guy, and I, I always wonder how you all keep every day able to do this, given the enormity of it. I mean, Guy talked about in the presentations and in the data that you've collected, you see that things are a little better, but still the enormity of it, of one in 10 children are forced child labor. And so I'm just wondering, how do you see the short term and the long term? How do you grapple with that daily enormity of it, but the long term of trying to fix it? Yeah. So first of all, um, as we heard today, the numbers also tell a positive story. Yeah. On child labor, we do see the numbers going down. Not as fast as we would like to, but they are going down. And think of it, since 2000, more than 90 million decline in child labor. This is a huge achievement. So mm. we do see progress. On forced labor or slavery, we can't say it yet. We can't put the numbers to it yet. But I do see progress as well. I travel a lot for mm. my job, as you can imagine. So let me give you an example. Please. Something that does inspire me and that, you know, every time I see these situations, I come home and say, this is why I'm doing this. So some time ago, I was invited to speak at a congress of domestic workers from Indonesia who worked in Hong Kong. And they had, for the very first time, come together and organized in, under a sort of a trade union umbrella. Mm. I came there, it was a Sunday, it was the only day off. They had gathered at a university campus, the only safe place they could find. I heard them chanting when I came in. They hugged me, kissed me and said, you know, you're here from the ILO because you're here, the government is also here. Thank you, thank you. And then they told me their story and you know, I engaged the government in a discussion. I said, look, this is, you know, these situations, some of them are forced labor. You have ratified the ILO's forced labor conventions. You, you have an obligation to protect those workers. And you know, step by step, you see change. You see governments taking action. I've been in countries where the government has been in a denial for years. Not for wanting, example, not not wanting to. I, I you know I don't want to put a name on this, okay. but in, in different regions, you know, Africa, Asia. You know, when you come into a country, it's very difficult initially mm -hmm. to engage. It's very difficult. And in fact, that's that's as you were speaking, I thought that very thing. Once you walk away and you're not there that day, yes. the government's also being pressured by these corporations who want to come in use their workers, exploit them because they bring money into the country, even though it's low wages. So there's this alliance often between, that I've seen in labor work, between governments and corporations that's hard for someone like you to combat normally, isn't it? Well, but here comes the pressure, the external pressure, right? Mm -hmm. So first is, you know, I very much believe in the power of organization and empowerment from below. When you get workers together, they actually know how to claim their rights. And, and you just have to give them a safe space. You have to give them the right to do so, which in many countries is not the case. That's a very so, important point. Very important point. They Absolutely. don't have the rights. For example, in China no. is a great example. Um, that's why you have Foxconn and all sorts of suppliers who supply product to Apple. Yes. And Apple can say, oh, we don't know anything about those contractors. Well, they can't say it anymore. They can't say it anymore. But I think the, the first key point is what we've seen in our mm. work and research. A country that does not guarantee the right of freedom of association and collective bargaining, there's a problem there of forced labor, for sure. Mm -hmm. There is a clear correlation between yep. the denial of freedom of association 
in forced labor. The ability to form a union. Yeah. Absolutely, yep. mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, so that's the first thing. The second is pressure, where are the pressure points? So if, especially if there's a country where trade unions are not independent or you know, hardly exist or just very weak. And here the international pressure comes in. And more and more we see countries, and we've heard it today, you know, realizing that they have a responsibility here. And the UN guiding principles on business and human rights have helped a lot. International coalitions, campaigns have helped a lot. And often the unions are part of it. Mm -hmm. And our standard system has helped because through the ILO's standard system and the supervision, we can also uh, hold governments to account. But what's the penalty to a government other than being publicly criticized? What can you do to a country? I wouldn't, I wouldn't underestimate this. Uh -huh. Public exposure and, and the, you know, the, ob the obligation to report and, and to, to respond to a supervisory committee is something most governments care about. And even if they may not care about initially, with mounting international pressure and the case not going away, sooner or later the government will respond. Sooner it's, or later means sometimes it takes take a few years, years right? indeed. And yeah. and you know you may think you know how can we afford to wait? And I agree. Mainly because you've got a hundred million, a hundred and whatever million you said, and you've got all these kids in child labor while they're essentially filibustering, while yeah. they're delaying and dragging it out, yeah. people are suffering. Yeah. Now, on China, I'm not trying to be negative. I'm yeah. kind of trying to figure out both playing devil's advocate, yes. but also trying to figure out, you know, short of changing the system, I have to say the free market system, free market capitalism, which is basically profiting from this situation. I mean, people, Sharon Burroughs said this quite well, that this is a reality of the system. It's failed. The fact that we have all these people in slavery shows the failure of free market capitalism, I think. Well, we, we've actually said it as I know in, in our reports, it's a failure of labor market governance systems. Mm -hmm. And and of you know, of the ability of governments to regulate and to enforce, clearly. Mm -hmm. And we have even put a figure to the profits the illicit profits generated by forced labor, 150 billion, and that's a very conservative estimate. We will do more research now to, to look into the profits more closely. So global corporations overall, and maybe local corporations, make a profit of $150 billion just because every of- Every year, every year. Just from the forced labor. Yeah. Just from the forced labor yeah. piece, every year, mm -hmm. every year. And it's a conservative estimate. We are now investing more uh, resources into the economics, into understanding the economic root causes, but also um, profit supply chain dimensions and so on. So we will see in the next uh, years what we come up with. But 150 billion is a good sort of number to remember that there are huge profits involved, economic interests involved that are not easy to break. So I, I agree, it, it may sound, look like a daunting task. But the point is what we see here today um, with the Leadership Roundtable, 37 countries signing up to a call to action. Many of them do have a problem of modern slavery in their own country. Mm -hmm. And yet they come together and say, yes, we are committed to do something. This is a real turning point. So I think we do see growing international consensus that keeping passports is not normal. 
Right. Withholding pay, uh, wages or keeping people in debt bondage is not normal. It's not a cultural practice. It's, it's illegal. Mm -hmm. um, selling and buying people, of course, is illegal. Um, but we have to do something to stop it. So I think there is a real drive now to change, to change the system. Now, where we see a need for more better understanding and more targeted action is indeed the root causes or what you see, the systemic mm -hmm. issues. So to some extent they are related to the, the way, you know, whether societies are democratic, whether you can, whether you are free to set up a union or not. Yeah, that's yep. one important, very important element of a systemic failure. The other part where we say failures in governance is related to migration. Mm -hmm. yeah, the fact that we cannot um, provide uh, migrants with legal pathways to jobs is, 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 is a big issue, is a big problem. Um, the other issue, is, which is now increasingly being discussed, is the issue of supply chains, both domestic supply chains and also global supply chains, and how they, they can conceal abusive practices. Mm -hmm. So we need to strengthen regulations, due diligence on transparency and so on, that shed a light on those illegitimate, illicit business practices. Now let's, I'm going to come back for a sec in a minute to democracy and migration, but let's talk about supply chains. For my listeners, let's give them, let you describe what is a supply chain. I, I think when people say supply chain, they think, hmm, what does that mean? So first, it's not a sort of a, a clear top-down uh, network, right? It's, 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 a, it's a very complex arrangement of co legal contracts and, and arrangements. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think it's, it's an illusion to think that a company can, uh, one main contractor can kind of order down Certain. So it's kind of like a sprawling it's octopus, more, it's more like, like an, an octopus. octopus yeah. yeah, or yeah. like one of our uh, employers always say, it's like a, a plate of um, spaghetti. Right, it's or jello like or yeah, something. Exactly. You, you grab yeah. it and it spurts so, apart. Mm -hmm. So nevertheless, um, you know, all these companies are linked by contracts. And these contracts can contain provisions to safeguard labor rights. Right. It's a matter of will. And we've heard this again today. If you find a problem, you pick up the phone, you can fix it. You mm -hmm. just need to want to see what's wrong, and you need to build in safeguards or due diligence mechanisms into your system, and when something happens, you need remedial action so that you can mitigate. So risk. essentially what you said, okay, we a supply chain is this complex set of relationships between, let's say, the parent company, let's call it, for like Apple or yeah. some company. Yeah. I'm not just going to pick on Apple yeah. just for, yeah. just because yeah. I keep remembering Apple and yeah. Foxconn. Yeah. Yeah. And then all their suppliers down below. So, you know, the, the, the contractor making the part for the iPhone, the screen in China, and all those complex relationships. So the challenge... And the minerals that are mined in Congo, for instance. The minerals that are mined in the Congo. In the DRC, so these yeah. things are all over the world. And the challenge then is, first of all, to identify those contractors and suppliers and then make the top dog somehow feel responsible or put pressure on them, yeah. right? More or less, I, I'm simplifying it. So the, the, the multinational company can, has a lot of leverage, clearly. Because they can break the contract. They can say, you know, just like yes. Andrew Forrest. Yes, they, they can, exactly. I mean, that was a very clear illustration. You can, you have leverage. You can say, you know, either you fix it or we, we break, or 
I make it public. Yeah. Uh, right. So. But there are few. There are very few CEOs necessarily that, that are taking it, that. That do it. Um, but yeah, it's it's it's. It's getting, I mean, legislation has helped, like the British Modern Slavery Act, where it's now mandatory for companies to, to disclose information on, on, on what they do against mm -hmm. slavery. So I think it's, you know, it has helped create awareness. Um, more and more CEOs are aware that this is happening and we need to be aware of it. Um, but the other important point here is um, how multinational companies are linked and connected with domestic supply chains. Mm. I mean, I think we should be clear that the, the vast majority of child labor and forced labor today takes place in the informal economy. It's not necessarily in the kind of relationship you have described between one big multinational company and one big supplier like Foxconn. I mean, mm -hmm. you have problems there, but where we see forced labor is in domestic service, is in, you know, brick kilns that are still produced in a very traditional way. Agriculture was a big one in the report. It's very big plantations, agriculture, uh, fishing, and so on. So it's, it's, you know, it goes deep down the supply chain. In the garment supply chain, for instance, we are talking about cotton production. That's mm -hmm. where the risk is highest. Uh, in the field. The in actual, the field, yeah. actually picking the cotton, yeah? Mm -hmm. So, it's, and it's not always easy. And for many companies, once they've seen the risk in a particular country, the easiest step may indeed be to just cut the links. And sometimes this may be the right decision. In other instances, it's better to engage, mm -hmm. to bring your suppliers on board, educate them, build their capacity so that they can implement regulations and pay fair prices. Mm -hmm. I mean, main suppliers set the prices. Mm -hmm. And through the procurement practices, I think you can change a lot, both for private companies as well as for public contracts, both. Mm -hmm. Now, um, they're amazing. I'm trying to, there's so many amazing facts and descriptions in your reports. One of them that struck me, and it came up in this conference, was the notion of, um, the way in which people are vulnerable after disasters. Yeah. Um, the, the story of all these women standing out after the hurricane, I guess it was, or typhoon yeah. in the Philippines. And that made me think of, you know, the, the way in which climate change yeah. is affecting um, both forced labor and slavery in places like Africa, where they're going through tremendous famine and drought, and in other places in Southeast Asia. And so talk a little bit yeah. about what you found there, yeah. the, the both armed conflict, um, climate change disasters? Yeah. So first of all, we, uh, we, I should say that we, are, um, we, we have very little data mm. on this. And this will be one of our priorities for research as we move forward. Uh, an estimate of children recorded in armed conflict. And the other is um, the, the number of people affected by crisis, including climate change, natural disasters, as well as conflict. But what we see from initially looking at the data we have now is that the, there's a clear um, trend in growing sort of higher incidence of child labor in crisis-effective countries, um, as well as forced labor, including forced marriage, by the way. So what we need to understand is how, or what we need to do is to integrate action against forced labor and child labor in humanitarian responses. 
and that's ah, not there yet. That's interesting. You know, you get the UN usually reacts. Right, um, they come in with, military, they set up uh, tents, exactly, big refugee, refugee camps. camps. And, so and, and lots of good things are being done in terms of food provision and, shelter. and education and shelters. Mm -hmm. But then the kids are recruited by local uh, agents, either sold into forced marriage or to work on the fields or do something. So, and that happens outside the power. The, the UN forces there can't stop that really. First of all, they, they, maybe they don't. Do they have the legal right, or they just don't have the capacity the, to monitor? It's the capacity. It. I yeah. mean, the, the UN simply cannot care for all the yeah. uh, displaced people. Mm. Um, and, and they need to earn money. So in countries where refugees don't have the right to work, for instance, they send their children. Mm. Yeah. So and I so many people are, when you think about the, I did a podcast not too long ago about the number of refugees yeah. that are just all around the yeah. world, both yeah. armed conflict yeah. for obvious reasons. Yeah. If you just yeah. think about the Middle East, you think yeah. about the number of Syrians who yeah. are refugees. Yeah. But also because of climate change, because yeah. they're forced off their land because yeah. they can't so, so farm. He, exactly. So here's the interesting, thing, interesting thing we need to watch in the future is really the the correlation between conflict uh, and crisis and climate change mm. and what it means to the vulnerability of people. And there, the scenario is not positive, unfortunately. It's it will affect many countries in the sub-Saharan region. We see it already. In the Middle East, we see it. In many parts of Asia, we see it. Um, and um, in all the crisis settings, the, the risk of, of being trafficked, of ending up in child labor is much higher. Yeah. Up, I mean, to some extent, 70% higher than in other settings. Now, in maybe wrapping up this conversation, the one thing I do want to um, focus on a little bit is sometimes people think of these challenges of slavery and child labor as a third world issue, to use that terminology, mm -hmm. Africa, Southeast Asia, but if you look at the United States, for example, where you have, back to your point about democracy, uh, in the United States, the right to unionize is declining. Fewer and fewer people can have unions where women, particularly when you're talking about, to your great point about domestic workers, and then to the other issue of migration where the current man in the Oval Office is making such an issue of targeting people who are without, are undocumented, that together means, from what I can understand from your analysis, that basically we would foresee a rise in slavery and forced labor in this country, in the United States, just based on that. So first of all, the United States is not immune against yeah. forced labor or child mm -hmm. labor. And in, in this year's report, uh, we have, for the first time, we have also included data on child labor in developed countries, including in EU member states. Ah, very good based on data from EU member states, so uh, as well as from, from other developed countries, uh, including the US. So we, we do see uh, child labor, as well as forced labor, in the developing countries as well. It's not just a developing yeah. country problem. But I, I, wanted, so, I wanted us now, to talk about that because some people will have that misperception, I think. Yes, but yep. I think it's yes. important that we mm. correct this misperception. Mm -hmm. And with unprotected migration, um, with a suppression on, on union rights or civil liberties more broadly, um, there will clearly be a higher risk of people being abused. Yeah. No you know, I think, I think what we've seen in the thousands and thousands of statements we've analyzed from all over the world, there's no limitation to what 
fellow human beings can do to others in order to reap a quick profit. And Doesn't that make you shake your head often just in your work? You just sometimes read a statement and you say, how the fuck can somebody do that to somebody? Yeah, yeah. well, I think we just need to be clear. And I think the High Commissioner for Human Rights had very, yes. I mean, very powerful words for this. You know, we, 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 it's, it's a shameless world in which we live. Um, and, and I think we need more courageous people, of course, to, to stand up. And, and to, to, to give those people a voice who don't have it. But I think the government, and that's always our, our ultimate plea, ultimately it's the government responsible for protecting anyone, citizens and non-citizens, that live on the territory of this country from forced labor and child labor. It's a government responsibility. We'd like to see the United States ratifying the conventions. They have ratified the worst forms of child labor convention. We'd like to see them ratify the forced labor conventions, the forced labor protocol, as we would like to see other countries ratify those instruments as well. Because based on those instruments, we can hold governments to account. And that's what we need to do. And that'll do it for this week's podcast. I want to thank my incredible guests, Guy Ryder and Bieta Andres from the ILO. And I hope people in thinking about the conversation continue to think every day about the horrific conditions that people labor under, the slavery of workers all around the world, the child laborers, those who are ages 5 to 17. If you think about them every day, you will give a lot of support to the kind of work that Guy and all the people working on this issue are doing every single day. Our audio editor, as usual, is David Hebden. If you haven't become a subscriber yet to the Working Life podcast, please do so by going to workinglife.org, click on the podcast tab, and consider becoming a financial supporter so we can bring you this news, this information, this critical information about the movements around the world to make it a better place for workers. Look forward to having you back next week. Mm -hmm.